9 to 3 Saturday at our studios on Route 52, Liberty, New York. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Radio Catskill, WJFF. Edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. And here we are Thursday heading uh, headfirst, barreling down the road into a holiday weekend here. What is that holiday? It's Labor Day. Labor Day is Monday. This is a holiday weekend. And uh, we're going to kind of pregame the holiday a little bit, as many people are, by uh, checking out Rural Migrant Ministries about what they've got coming up and uh, also just uh, general labor issues. And we're actually working on a special uh, edition of the local edition on Monday evening where we're totally focused on labor, by the way, so you want to be listening for that. But we'll be talking to Rural Migrant Ministries coming up in the second half of the program for now. Right now, what we're going to do on Thursday is what we usually do on Thursday is we start off with our weekly news roundup with the Times Union. For that, we turn to Philip Pantuso of the Times Union, Hudson Valley Bureau. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Happy uh, almost unofficial end of summer. Yeah, happy almost unofficial end of summer. Um, so, and and again, with everything that is going on, I'm glad that you're with us live, so thanks again for that. Um, so uh, this week you have an article in the Times Union uh, about uh, Saugerty's daycare being closed last minute, and I guess this is related to staffing issues and violations. What what can you tell us? So this was a drama that was playing out over the last week, primarily on Facebook, concerning the St. Mary and St. Joseph Early Learning Center, which is a child care uh, and, and daycare center in Saugerties, connected to a church there. And there are about 150 children who go to who attend programs there. And uh, last week, the, the church announced on Facebook that the, that the daycare center would be closing for... Um, for from for some financial restructuring that needed to take place due to some violations that had been found. Um, so, the, at the time, the what the what the church said was that this closure would be temporary. Um, the state office of Children and Family Services had found uh, nine violations during inspections of the facility between October 2021 and July 2023. Um, they had found five violations alone during an ins- the most recent inspection, which took place last month. But kind of basic procedural stuff like staff not keeping uh, records up to date of health statements and not completing their 30 hours of required training every two years, which is uh, the, the state minimum. 
The most notable violation came earlier this year, though, when an inspection that was initiated by a complaint found that the center had isolated a child in a closet, darkened area, or any area where the child cannot be seen and supervised. Apparently, according to the Office of Children and Family Services, that violation was corrected, but that issue was not reported to a statewide register as is, as is supposed to happen. So, so anyway, just kind of, kind of some behind-the-scenes issues over there. The reverend of the church said that they needed to do a financial restructuring, and they had applied for an extension of their license that they expected to come in by oh. the end of this month, which would allow them to, to reopen once these violations were taken care of. Well, it turns out that they got that extension the day after the reverend announced the temporary closure on Facebook. But what they had already done was lay off a couple of people, including an assistant director of programs there who it seems was, was quite popular with, with much of the rest of the staff and seemed to be kind of a, a firewall or a go-between between the, the rank and file who work at the daycare center and the church administration and the administration of the, of the center itself. And so in response to that, and I think in response to some of the working conditions, a number of staff said that they would not be coming back to work. Some people started working or looking for work elsewhere. And in response, the reverend the following day, after saying that they had planned to reopen by September 6th, announced that they were actually closing for good. Uh, this was on August 25th, so uh, just under a week ago as we're speaking. And that left a number of parents in the lurch because yeah. you know, school is just about to start. Um, child care is, is notoriously kind of hard to find in this region as it is in, in many places. And a lot of facilities are already full up. So our Maria Montero Silva spoke with a couple of parents who – it kind of seemed like they're at their wit's end. They don't exactly know what to do here. And furthermore, they, they were quite critical of the communication or lack thereof from the church itself. We had one staff member tell us that the reverend uh, had actually been communicating internally to them that, that it seemed that like the facility would close as, as, far in advance as four or five days before he said that to the public. And obviously that's very valuable time at this time of year, wow. given the situation that that thrust parents into. What was the delay, do you think? I, I wish that he could tell us, but he is on vacation this week. <laughs> so he was not available to answer any questions. Uh, Maria, our reporter, sent emails to, to him and to other administration members there she made phone calls, and she actually went in person, and at every turn, she was rebuffed any kind of clear answer. Uh, the Reverend is supposed to be back tomorrow, so we, we may get a little bit more detail there. Um, I don't want to speculate. If, you know, this was kind of a fast-moving situation, and so you know, it's possible that he or others ex hoped that the situation would change such that the facility could reopen. But that's certainly not what happened. 
Well, we started off talking about Labor Day, and it seems like that intersects with the story in potentially two ways. One, we're mentioning a vacation there. This is the time a lot of people are taking vacations in and around this weekend. But the other thing, it sounds like that in addition to this being a story, as I thought it was primarily about, you know, like like child care and state regulations and safety and health concerns, sounds like there's a bit of a labor issue here that 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 it's in some ways it's about the la- the concerns of of the employees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that seems to have been the kind of second incident here that that may have forced this closure. One staff member who asked to remain remain anonymous, who spoke with us, said that some of the former employees have found other employment, but most have not. So there may be there may be further turns here. Uh, We shall see. Okay. Well, um, and uh, you know. You have another story, uh, uh, a professional story. Dozens of female professors at Vassar filing a federal class action lawsuit. Uh, this just happened yesterday. It's an, another labor issue alleging gender pay discrimination. What can you tell us? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, this, I, I swear this was unplanned that I would have all these labor-related stories for Labor Day weekend. But, yeah, so this was a this was a pretty major announcement that I, I think has gotten written up in a lot of the national newspapers as well. Um, we got uh, sent a release yesterday morning noting that five professors had filed. These are all female, full, full professors at Vassar College. They filed a class action lawsuit that was sort of joined by 35 other full professors and emeritus professors who had kind of signed on in the letter of support, alleging a pattern of gender-based pay discrimination at Vassar College that extends back at least 20 years to the 2003-2004 academic school year. And I was, I'm the one who reported out this story, and I was kind of reading through the complaint, and their, the basis for what they say are these are these is this discriminatory pay is um, is pretty wide ranging. So they cite a number of things. They 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 look at uh, data salary data that the college itself had shared with the Chronicle of Higher Education, which you know attempts to publicize all, all number of college data, showing that for every year over the last twenty years there's been a gender pay disparity for full professors at the college. Um, and in fact, that disparity has actually widened over time. The first year that they have the data on record, it, uh, male professors were paid 7.6% more than female professors. And in 1920, they were paid 14.6% more. The most recent year on record is 21-22, when the gap was 10%. And... Folded into this are a number of kind of procedural issues that I I think are worth touching on briefly. So the attorney for the plaintiffs whom I spoke with tried to make clear to me that this was a last resort um, because, in part, a group of these professors have been trying to address these issues internally at the college since at least 2008. They've done this in a number of ways through holding... um, conferences with, uh, with administrations, by gathering data, by, um, by 
providing recommendations by trying to increase transparency and, of course, pay equity. And they say that those attempts have mostly been rebuffed and that, in fact, the college has even made the transparency around pay uh, like more opaque, basically. Um, so they decided to file this lawsuit. Um, it's going to probably take a long time. I was told by the attorney that just the motion to uh, for class certification, which is what the court will have to issue to make this officially a class action lawsuit, that could take 18 to 24 months. <laughs> um, the college itself in a statement said that they have been working on these issues and that they feel that they uh, pay faculty fairly and have complied with the law and would like to resolve this issue. I asked what they meant by that, and they just redirected me to the same statement. Wow. I'm, I'm wondering, you said you said like a lot of colleagues signed on to this in, in addition to those who were making the initial complaint. Were, were any of these uh, male colleagues that were supporting their female colleagues? So this, so this, Letter that was filed. This, the letter that was signed by 35 professors was kind of co-filed with the complaint, um, and it was all it was all women. In part because they are saying that these five named plaintiffs are suing on their behalf as well, and and others similarly similarly situated. So I have no doubt that there are male colleagues at Vassar who support this cause, and I know some have made statements to that effect on, on social media and elsewhere. But this letter is essentially saying that us, the undersigned, have experienced the same discrimination. And while we're not named plaintiffs in the suit, they are filing on our behalf. All right. And uh, another story that, that I that I noticed myself, too, because uh, I'm, I'm a bit into history, is uh, they found a 200-year-old time capsule. And, and the impression that I got at West Point, by the way, and the impression I got is they weren't expecting to find it. Was this a surprise find or is this something <laughs> that they knew was there? Yeah, this was this has kind of been a fun story that Lana Bellamy has been reporting on for us over the past week or so. Um, so West Point, while doing renovations on the monument to Thaddeus Kosciuszko, the Polish guy who was an engineer and fact, kind of designed uh, most of West Point, they found kind of embedded within the base of the monument, this time capsule that they dated to, uh, to 1828, I believe it was, let me clarify that actually. Um, yeah, 1828, which would have, I think, about 26 years after West Point opened. Wow. Um, I think there's a stamp basically on the, on the time capsule that dates it. And that's and so, that's like forty years after the founding of the country. I mean, there was there was revolution yeah. revolutionary veterans uh, still around at that time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably teaching at West Point. Um, and uh, so they they found this. They they discovered this or and made the announcement about it uh, about two weeks ago. And they were going to open it before a live audience in the auditorium there at West Point on Monday, which they did. Lana went, uh, we, we sent a photographer as well. There was a lot of press there and a lot of people watching online. And they opened up the capsule. It's, it's about a 12-inch square or cube lead box. 
with a kind of lid that's like fastened to it in some way. So they sort of peeled back the lid. There's a camera that's right up there on stage that's filming what's happening and broadcasting it up on a screen and on YouTube. And you can hear as they peel back this lid, this collective gasp from everybody watching in the audience because it seemed as if the box was totally empty. Uh, it was a real oh my gosh. letdown initially. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's um, a, you know, the vaults of Al Capone, uh, Geraldo Rivera yeah. come back to haunt us. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, Lana actually made that same joke in the article, which I was, I was proud of her for as, <laughs> as her editor. Um, but uh, they, you know, through their disappointment, they, they the archaeologist uh, there at West Point told reporters that they were going to do further examinations and testing of some sediment and debris that was in the bottom of the box because he said that, you know, it would it just didn't seem like they would go through all this trouble to, to build and bury a time capsule if they weren't going to put anything in it. What they thought at the time might have happened is that whatever was in there could have decomposed because one of the seams of the box had broken. And so it wasn't completely sealed off to the elements. But on Wednesday, uh, they sent out an update saying that in that debris and in that, in that detritus at the bottom of the box, they had found a handful of coins and a commemorative medal. And uh, they, they sent photos of these. They're like, they're 50 cent coins, a 25 cent coin, a 10 cent coin, a five cent coin, a one cent coin, a Liberty dollar. Um, and the, the commemorative medal is an Erie Canal. It's, comm- it's co- commemorating the completion and, and the opening of the Erie Canal that dates from 1826. The coins, um, and we have really nice, big, high-res photos of them on the story on our website. The coins date from uh, as far back as 1795, and the most recent one was, was 1828. So I think that kind of confirms the 1828 burial date. Um, so a little bit of a positive thing wow. there. I, I, you know, I don't know if maybe there were other items in there at one point. kind of seems... It's a big box for only, you know, six coins and a, and a small metal. So maybe maybe there were paper items or, or other things that would have been more likely to decompose over time. But not a total bust in the end. No, this is, this is amazing. I'm actually looking at it while you're talking to me, and this is the pretty good conditions for coins that age, and that's the early uh, liberty with flowing hair, and, uh, you know, which is something that's very much – like some of the first coins that the U.S. ever made had that version of liberty on it. So this is really cool. So I guess that really does indicate that there there probably was a lot of paper material in there that just didn't last the test of time. The things that lasted were things that were metal that don't decay as quickly in a temperate climate like ours that we have here in the Hudson Valley and Catskills. Yeah, possibly. I you know I think they're going to do more um, testing on the debris in the bottom of the box maybe radiological stuff or things that might be able to date some of those, some of the things, or at least tell us what it is that they, that they might've been. Um, but yeah, unfortunately we, we probably won't actually know precisely what else might've been in there. 
Well, this is great. This is really cool. I'm getting into this. Before we go, we have we have just like a, a minute left. Quick, if you could. Um, I, I know that this is kind of breaking news that just a couple hours ago the state announced. It's breaking news on an old story, essentially, that the state's releasing money to help with Hurricane Ida. That was that was a couple of years ago, right? That's right. Yeah. So after Hurricane Ida, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul announced a four-part action plan that would include $40 million in federal funding, and uh, different kind of programs and initiatives that would be bid out through requests for proposals. So um, some of those have happened already. Um, the two that she announced today are a $15.6 million re- repair and re- reimbursement program and a $4 million resilient investments program. So the, the repair and reimbursement program is for homeowners who can apply for you know, funds up to uh, through through that program to do repair work on their homes. And the Resilient Investments Program is for uh, community-based organizations who are doing, like, mitigation and repair work. So that might be, like, flood mitigation or, or things of that nature. And this is open to residents, basically, who are impacted by the storm. So you know, it hit most hard on Long Island, New York City, and in Westchester. It's open to it's it's open to residents on uh, Suffolk and Nassau, Nassau counties on Long Island, and Dutchess, Orange, Rockland, and Westchester uh, here in the Hudson Valley. The city is going to have its own recovery program with separate funding. All right. Well, Philip, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us once again, give us this update, and I hope you have a great holiday weekend ahead of you. You too. Take care. Phil Pantuso from Times Union, the Hudson Valley Bureau. We check in with him every Thursday right here on the local edition. We're going to take a quick, quick break. We'll be right back with the Rural Migrant Ministry. This is Radio Catskill. You're listening to the local edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hey, it's Mimi Bradley. They say summer is winding down, but I don't know about you. I still have some summer stuff I want to do, like have another music yard sale. It's happening 9 to 3 this Saturday with records, CDs, cassettes, turntables, stereos, all priced to move, so bring a big vehicle and load up. The Music Yard Sale, 9 to 3, Saturday, at Radio Catskill in Liberty. See you there. Welcome back to the local edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Rural and Migrant Ministry is dedicated to establishing fairness in rural New York State with fostering leadership, supporting marginalized groups, particularly farm workers and rural workers. They're organizing a fundraising event called the Farm Worker Celebration and Walk, scheduled from noon to four, Saturday, September 23rd in Cornwall on Hudson. We're going to learn more about this now by talking to Elizabeth Gress, Special Fundraising Events Coordinator at Rural Migrant Ministry. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Welcome to the program. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about RMM and your awesome event that's coming up in September. So can you just give people a a quick reminder? I mean, I I said a little bit of it in the intro there, but is there anything else people need to know as a reminder of of what uh, RMM is? Yes. 
So we are a justice organization that serves New York State, and we are located, our main office, in the Hudson River Catskills area. We're in Cornwall, um, and we have programs all throughout New York State that focus on youth empowerment, farm worker advocacy, and rural advocacy, and popular education. So we do a lot, um, but we are really dedicated to rural New York and making sure that we're empowering change and leadership in the community. Excellent. So let's dive right in and talk about this event. It's a farm worker celebration and walk. Where'd the idea come from for this? Yeah, so we're actually changing things up. We normally have a traditional style fundraising event that has um, a dinner program. But this year we were like, you know what? It's a new year. It's a good time for change. So we're doing something different. We're hosting it on our campus in Cornwall, which is new for us. Um, we have a 44-acre campus. And so instead of doing a dinner, we're going to do a spin and do a lunch. Um, and so the lunch will feature our amazing honorees from the Hudson River area. And then we're also incorporating a farm worker celebration walk. So right after the lunch, we're going to get up. We're going to tour the campus. We're going to hear amazing poetry and spoken word, multimediums of art throughout the entire campus that focuses on celebrating farm workers. So it's a new and exciting thing that we're trying out this year. Um, and it's for everybody. So uh, the lunch is a ticketed event, but the walk is free. So whether you're able to financially support or not, you can still come for the day and, and join us. How do events that you do like this, I mean, it's a fundraising event and that's important, but um, how do they contribute to uh, raising awareness about the challenges faced by farm workers, rural workers, migrant workers? So basically, the way our events work, obviously, primarily, the fundraising portion goes to back towards our programs in the Hudson Valley. But the second fold, the way we want to have these events structured and the program structured is that we really focus on highlighting our programs and the things that we do in this area. So it is super important that we invite people from every walk of life in the region so that they can get a sense of what it is that we do and what the issues that rural New York farm workers face. So really the idea is to invite people who know what goes on um, in the lives of rural workers and those who might not know. So the idea is to have everybody come together and learn about the problems faced, but also ways you can make a change and take action. Great. You know, uh, beyond this event, uh, do you have other uh, events coming up in the future or are there ongoing initiatives or projects uh, that Rural Migrant Ministries engage in to, uh, you know, keep helping promote justice and support in rural areas? Absolutely. We are so busy over here. So like I said, we are a statewide organization, so we have programs going on throughout the year, throughout the state. But specifically in the Hudson Valley, our campus is the main hub for retreats. So we have a lot of youth retreats, women's retreats, farm worker retreats to get a sense of um, empowering and leadership programs. And then we also have um, our Rural Women's Assembly event, which is going on in December at the Villa Roma. So we always have programs happening, but the fall and the winter are really great times to get involved. We just finished up with our summer overnight leadership camp that was in Holmes, New York, that had about 75 to 100 rural children from throughout the state for a whole week of empowerment. So, you know, we're busy over here and there's so many ways to get involved or come visit us and, and see what's going on. Well, but can you tell us a little bit more about that event? Like what, what did you have the young people doing? Yeah. 
Yeah, so it was a week-long empowerment program. So it's, it's not your traditional camp. Yes, it is fun. We have all the water activities and we have field trip day. But really the idea of this camp is to give rural youth the opportunity to empower themselves and learn leadership. So it's a week-long program. We have artists from throughout the state come through different types of mediums to express art and social change and problems they may be facing in their communities, kind of letting it out through the art medium. And then they all present at the end of the camp to their families and just kind of a big whole thing. And every night we have this huge bonfire called Vespers. And it's a program where we invite anyone to come up and speak through music or through spoken word, kind of just what their feelings are and, and how, you know, how their lives go. And so basically it's, it's a really big camp focused on empowering themselves and empowering change in their communities. And uh, that website is ruralmigrantministry.org. That's ruralmigrantministry.org. And the farm worker celebration and walk is happening on September 23rd and telling us all about it here today. We've been talking to Elizabeth Gress, Special Fundraising Events Coordinator at Rural Migrant Ministry. Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for going over all this with us. Thank you so much for having me and so happy to have RMM out there in the world. (laughs) And that's going to be it for the local edition tonight. Thank you so much to our guests, and thank you for listening, and do keep on listening. On air, online at wjffradio.org. Your smartphone, your smart device, just ask it to play Radio Catskill. Um, So some programming notes for you to let you know this is a holiday weekend coming up. And one of the things that we're celebrating uh, this weekend is 50 years of hip hop, as folks have been doing all month long in August. We've got Hip Hop 50, the NPR special. It's an hour long hosted by Juana Summers, talks to DJ Cool Herc uh, and a lot of other folks. Um, That hour long special is going to be on right after Liberation Station on Saturday. Uh, And then Old School Session starts an hour early for a five-hour-long um, hip-hop 50th anniversary celebration. It's all happening Saturday. It's time for The Daily. This is Radio Catskill.